The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. King of glory. I pray you would lift up the gates of our hearts, throw wide open the doors, and come in. We're glorious and mighty King, the Lord of hosts. We need you to come in and consume us. Would you be present here in our midst, Lord? Would you occupy our minds and our hearts? Would you even now prepare the way? Calm us, focus us, direct us. Present yourself to us. Come. Lord, that is our hope and our need. Pray that you would oversee this time now. You'd be honored by it, be seen in it, you'd move in our midst. It's our prayer, Lord. May Christ be honored. Amen. Have you ever seen those television commercials for Aflac? I guess some have. It's a, it's an, a type of insurance, an insurance company. And all these commercials have a a common theme. There are two people talking back and forth about their various insurance needs. In the meantime, somewhere around them, there's a talking duck. Whereas they're talking about their needs, he keeps trying to cry out to them, Aflac, to tell them the answer, the name of this company. Problem is that every time he speaks up, a loud truck goes by or a horn sounds or something and he gets drowned out. He's right there in their midst. He's shouting out the answer to their problem, and nobody ever hears it. I have never met a talking duck, but I have had that experience. Have you? Something kind of like that? You're looking for something. You're looking for an answer to a problem, and it's right there on the shelf in front of you, but you don't see it. Or you're talking about someone, and they're right in the midst of the people who are there, and you don't realize it. Ever had that kind of experience? Sometimes it's kind of funny. Sometimes a little embarrassing, maybe frustrating. In its worst possible case, it's sad and destructive. Because if it so happens that the thing that you're looking for is something that you desperately need, that you desperately need to fix a certain problem, it's the answer to this thing, and maybe even the answer to this thing also, and maybe even a whole cluster of problems. This is the answer to it, and you miss it. For some reason or another, you look right by it. 
is sad. It could even be destructive because what you end up grabbing onto, even if it's an otherwise good thing, what you end up resting on and leaning on will fail. It will not end up being the thing that you most need. It won't be sufficient for what you're looking for. That is sad. There is in life one great treasure like that. One thing that is the answer to all of these problems that we have. One thing that is the thing we're always looking for. A great treasure. Jesus. And He's right here. He's hidden in plain sight right in front of us. And all throughout life there are clues, there are pointers, there are things calling out to us, directing us to Him. Some of that type of calling and pointing is in this morning's passage in John chapter 1. Last week we began the book of John, as Rob said, began in verses 1 to 18, and we saw there a couple of foundational points that God means for us to see and understand and then read the whole rest of the book in light of. If you boil down those points, essentially there are two of them. One talking about the identity of the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, fully God. And then one about his mission. He came to earth on a mission of revealing and redeeming. So two foundational points. And we're going to see those kind of elaborated on, added on to a little bit this morning in the testimony of John the Baptist. Today we look at verses 19 to 34 of chapter 1. They depict their John the Apostle's depiction of John the Baptist's ministry. We're going to see that John is, the Baptist is witnessing to us and his witness essentially has two different aspects, similar to the two foundational points. He has something to say both about the identity of and the purpose of the Messiah. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at those two different aspects of his testimony. But first, let me read the passage, John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness 
I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Begin by looking back through the flow of the text. Make sure we understand all the the details in it. John the Baptist, who's a different man from the Apostle John who wrote this book, John the Baptist was an unusual sort of guy. You can read about some other details about him in other books, other Gospels. But essentially, he lived an unusual lifestyle in the wilderness, and he went about stridently preaching repentance to Jewish people, which was odd. He was preaching the need for Jewish people to repent if they wanted to get into the, into the family of God and the kingdom of God, which is unusual because many thought they already were in by virtue of their ethnicity. But he preached repentance to them, and then if they heeded his call, he himself personally baptized them, which is also unusual because you would baptize Gentile converts or a Jew might ceremonially wash himself, but unusual for a Jew to baptize another Jew. So in a couple different ways, this was odd, and it raised some questions like, who are you, what are you doing, and who gave you authority to do this? So it seemed it required some authority to do this. The Jews from Jerusalem, that is the Jewish leaders, as that word Jews often means in the book of John, it's not all the people, it's very often the leaders. The leaders sent a delegation to him to ask him some questions. So verse 19, this is the testimony of John at that time. This is the testimony that he gave, and it still is his testimony. It's in the present tense, which is interesting because the effect it has is that it remains a living testimony to us. The way it's been written down kind of means that this was his testimony then, and it's his testimony to all who ask and listen. John still speaks, so to speak. The delegation asks him, Who are you, John? Verse 20 makes very clear, I am not the Christ. Things start at the the top of the expectation ladder. Jewish people that day, and for centuries before, had been looking forward to God bringing in the age of Messiah and delivering his people. Now, to fully explain all that would would take a lot of time, but here's the basic gist of it. About 1500 B.C., Moses had led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, 500 years later, about 1,000 B.C., King David reigned over Israel, delivered the the people from all their enemies, and set up the foundation for what would become Israel's golden age of 50 to 75 years or so. He set that up there. David is the one who was the subject of so many of those psalms that we looked looked in in July and August, if you remember all those. They're talking about, all those psalms were talking about this King David. He's the one who sought refuge in the Lord. He's the one in whom then the people were delivered. Remember all that? Well, all those psalms were talking about David, and they were also repeatedly pointing us beyond David, pointing us to someone greater than him, who would come after and and exceed him in righteousness and exceed him in accomplishment. A king like David, but greater than David. A king who would be anointed by God to deliver the people, finally, and fully, not just temporarily. 
these psalms, a bunch of other Old Testament texts pointing ahead to this sort of person. A great son whom all the nations of the earth would bow down to. Remember that from Psalm 2. But David died. He was put in the grave and his body rotted. Psalm 16 says that there was one coming who would not see corruption in the grave. This great King David. A great son. A great Messiah. The word Messiah in Greek it's Christ. That word means anointed one. There was going to be one coming who would not see corruption in the grave. So people were waiting. They're looking for this one to come. And they say to him, John, you're doing some really odd, interesting stuff. Are you that one? Are you that Christ? Absolutely not. Okay, well, if you're not the Christ, then maybe are you Elijah? The book of Malachi said would come back to precede the coming of the Christ. Are are you him? Nope. Okay, moving down the ladder. If you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, then maybe you're the prophet. A figure fuzzy in, in the Old Testament. He's, dis, he's described a little bit in the book of Deuteronomy and some little circles of Judaism thought that he would be an end times figure who would precede Elijah, who would precede the Christ. So they asked, well, maybe you're the prophet. Nope, not the prophet either. Well, then who in the world are you? We can't just go back to Jerusalem and say some things that you aren't. Positively speaking, who are you? And what he says should alarm them. Verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. I am the one Isaiah predicted would come and proclaim a particular message. And notice the message that I am proclaiming. Make straight the way of the Lord. The Baptist says that he is the fulfillment of that message in Isaiah. He's the fulfillment of that, of that central element of Isaiah. And that means that he's a fulfillment of a central element in this whole coming of Messiah idea. Isaiah 40, where John quotes from in this answer. Isaiah 40 is all prophetic. It's written before Israel even goes into exile. And it's talking about the time when they would return from the exile. And that and the next 25, 26 chapters lay out some alarming, stunning, glorious things. And it begins right there by describing how the Lord, if you look in Isaiah, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the name, the personal name of God Almighty, Yahweh. The Lord Himself would come and take care of His people's sin and would show Himself and His glory to all peoples and He would be seen. That sounded all like what we looked at last week in John 1. The Lord God Himself coming, His glory revealed, sin dealt with. Isaiah said that was going to happen. And John says that time is now. He is the voice telling people to prepare for this coming of God, the Lord. I am His forerunner, he says. Like the herald of a king running down the road in front of him. Make way, make way, make way for the king. Clear this garbage out. Get out of the way. Level out the rough places. The king is right behind me. He's coming. That's me, says John the Baptist. And that should stun them. Because that would mean that whoever John then points to that that one is the Lord Himself, God Almighty. That should get their attention. 
this delegation from Israel. But it doesn't. Very next verse. The portion of delegation that's from the Pharisees goes right back to where they just were. So if you're not the Christ, and you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing again? Do you see the oddness of this exchange? People are talking right by each other. He's laying something massive right there on the table in plain sight right in front of them. Something central to God's plan of redemption. God is about to come. And they are about to miss it. Why do you baptize again? It's right over their heads. They don't, they don't see it. So John answers, verse 26, I baptize with water, granted, but there is someone here, already here, and you don't know him, but you need to. You must. He is among you already, and he is of such awesome, omnipotent majesty that I am not even worthy to stoop down into the dust and untie one of his sandals. Disciples of that day would do many, many things for their teachers, for the ones they followed, but they wouldn't take their shoes off. Think about such a, a dusty world going around barefoot in sandals makes feet a little unpleasant. To take off someone else's shoes, that was slave work. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. He is so far above me. He reigns above me. I am absolutely nothing to him. I have just come to prepare the way for him. And he is already here. And the next day, verse 29, Jesus walks up and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, this is the one. This is the one I was talking about. You don't recognize him for who he really is. I wouldn't have known him either. But God who assigned me to this mission to, to point him out, told me his signal. And then he performed it in front of my eyes and in public for everybody else to see too. I'm going to mark him out for you, John, said God, because due to the humble manner in which he's going to come, you're not going to recognize him. You wouldn't know him otherwise. So I'm going to show him to you by sending down God the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to be in a visible form so that you can see it and understand. I'm going to anoint God the Son with God the Spirit in a way that you can see so that you'll know this is the one. Otherwise, you wouldn't recognize him. And that happened, says John. I baptized him. The heavens parted. The Spirit descended in the form of a dove and remained on him. I have seen and I bear witness. This is the one. Two verbs there. Seen and bear witness. The form of those verbs expresses resolve. I have no doubt. It couldn't be any other way. This is the one, the Son of God. As an, or as one translation puts it, it's probably better because it captures the allusion to Isaiah 42. This is the elect of God. Isaiah 42, God says, Behold my servant on whom I put my spirit. John's alluding back to that. This is the one. That's the testimony of John. Aflac. He's saying something to you. He's shouting out something repeatedly. The problem is, though, in life, very often when this gets shouted out to us, a truck goes by or a horn sounds and we miss it. It goes right over our heads. Don't miss this. 
hear it. God means for John to be a witness to you. Doing primarily two things. One, to focus you in on, to point out to you someone in particular. And then secondly, to point out to you, to focus you in on something in particular about that someone. There's the two aspects of his testimony that we're going to look at. Someone and something about that someone. It means for you to hear them, so hear them. The first aspect of John's witness is concerned with pointing out and fastening us to Christ. Expressed very simply, here it is. John just says, Behold the Christ, Jesus. Simple. Intellectually simple. Behold the Christ, Jesus. Here he is. For at least a thousand years, the people have been expecting the coming Christ. We talked a little bit about that already. More could be said about it, but the basic point is he was always awaited, but he hadn't come. It hadn't happened. So the people were constantly looking and longing and waiting. Where is he? Who is he? It was an important question for the original audience of John the Baptist and for the original audience of John the Gospel writer, probably writing to a largely Jewish audience. They want to know, who's the Messiah? I have to grant, though, that we're 21st century Utahns, and we probably don't get up every morning asking that question. Who is the Messiah? Either because we already know, or because it just isn't very important to us culturally. So it's important that we, that we think about this, because there's a great temptation for there to be a bit of a disconnect. If all that we have here is John pointing out the Messiah, and we already know, we're tempted to say, I guess that's good for you, you know, gee, thanks for telling me, but not that important to me. It is important to you, though, because while you may never have spent much time trying to identify someone called Messiah, haven't been working on that, you have been looking for something your whole life, and you're still looking for it. You're looking for a package, some package that fixes all of this. It changes everything that's wrong, that puts back together all that's broken, that gets rid of injustice, that gets rid of fighting and warfare and abuse, takes care of all health problems, puts the world back to what it was supposed to be out here. And that package also fixes you in here. Something that creates peace and joy and rest, delight in you. You've always been looking for that, and you're still looking for it. You want it every day. There is no sense of, oh, I found that last year, I don't need to look for that anymore. You get up this morning and you want that still. You still want it. To find that package would be to find a great treasure, would it not? That package is the answer to all of the problems. And it's set right here on the table. It's here. To find the solution to all of this world, all this world's ills, to find the solution to my internal problems, that would be a good thing. And that has come. It's, it's available. It's here. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, change can happen inside of me. 
There's hope for a new world to happen outside of me. And all of that, all of that package, all of that hope is connected to, it focuses in on the Messiah. You might not be looking for him, but you are looking for him. You're looking for what he is and for what he brings. Intellectually, you probably know all these things, and you know where to find him, but the point is that you can't ever turn away from him. If you find him once, you've got to find him again and again and again and again, because he doesn't just come in once, fix everything, and then can be forgotten about. The work of the Spirit in your life is a day after day after day thing. You need to keep looking for him and keep finding him. You actually are seeking the Messiah. You've got to know who he is. Well, you already know. Verse 31, John came to point him out to Israel and ultimately to you. The Messiah, the anointed one, is Jesus. Behold the Christ. It's Jesus. From God's perspective, all of God's work His solution to everything wrong in you and outside of you, all of that boils down to this one Messiah, Jesus. God's work is radically Jesus-centered. God's thinking right now is radically Christ-centered. God has moved all of history and has set it on this one person. There is no other name under heaven by which anybody can be saved from the penalty of sin or from the power of sin. Or one day from the presence of sin. God is Jesus-centered in in a profound and radical way. So what about you? What about you? What about from your perspective? Does your life radically center on, does it revolve around, is it focused on Jesus? I'm not talking about church here. I'm not talking about religious activities. Jesus. Him. His person. Are you internally and then externally oriented towards Christ? Towards knowing Him. Seeing Him. Loving Him. Being made more like Him. Identifying with Him in His suffering and in His mission. I ask because there is a great danger that we would just turn this into a very simple Sunday school lesson. Who's the Messiah? Jesus. Great, let's move on. Very easy to do that with this. But all of the Gospels, and this one in particular, the Gospel of John, they continually emphasize this point. People don't see Jesus. He's right there. The easy answer to all the questions. And people don't see him. You look in this passage, the delegation didn't see him. John twice says, I didn't even see him. I'm his cousin, and I didn't see him. You look through the rest of the gospel again and again and again. People might even use the right words. They might even be orthodox in their proclamation, but how they actually live makes us realize they have not internalized who he actually is. He hasn't come to grip them and change them on the inside, even though they have the right words. They may even in some way believe, but when he gets down to it, they turn away. That is a repeated theme in this gospel. So I I put the question to you. Is Jesus the center of you? See, the center of your life and your thinking and your loving and your hoping. 
Let us not be theologically orthodox Christians who live and love and think and chase after stuff just like the world does. This Jesus, if we could understand him as he is, would shock us, I am sure. He would call out, he would demand a radical reorientation of us here on the inside, which would lead to a radical reorientation of us on the outside. He'd be the center of all we think and do and love. I look at myself and I have a, a sneaky suspicion that I am not nearly as Christ-centered as I'm supposed to be. Are you? I'm talking right now about those of us who already have trusted Christ, who already have embraced Him. We all display a, a remarkable ability, a, a persistent habit of placing Jesus alongside of our lives and living like this living by, on our own agenda, in our own power, after things that we think are good, and we, and we check in with him every now and then when we think we need to, or when the preacher calls us to, or something like that. But, but really, it's fundamentally him over here with us while we drive the bus. However you want to graphically display that or describe it, the point that I'm making is that Jesus is a part of, he is not the center of. He's not the commander, the focus there's a difference between these two positions. You can think of it in, in other human relationships. Think of a man and a woman. When you are dating or engaged, where's that other person? Here, right? Everything you can think of is about her. What does she want? What would please her? Where might I go and just bump into her? Let me think about her. Let me put her picture up here and gaze at her. Oh, she sent me a note? What does it say? focused on this person while you're engaged, while you're dating, and then while you're engaged, and then you get married, and what happens? <laughs> and in some way, that's appropriate, because you can't actually sustain life so focused on just one other human being. Person to person, that, there needs to be some of that. I'm not really talking about marriage here, so let's not go into too many details about that. But the point I'm trying to make is that there's a difference, there's a shift in who or what is at the center, what we're living with alongside of, and what we're focused on. There's a difference there. And that change is not supposed to happen with Jesus. He is God Almighty, the Lord, come to earth, moved into your heart if you are a Christian. He commands center stage. He is the answer to everything you can ask. The solution to all the problems. He is the greatest treasure. Your life must center on Him. God has boiled all of life down to Him. God has built all of the plan of redemption. Redemption now, redemption that's ongoing, and redemption in the future centered it on Him. We need to be centered on Him. He must own the center position. Does He in your life? John points out, this is the Messiah. In other words, this is God's answer to everything. Live your life fixed on Him. Do you? It's the first aspect of John's testimony. He's pointing out someone to us. The second thing he points out is related to the mission of this someone, the purpose. T tied into that plan of redemption I just mentioned.
Here's the second main aspect of his testimony. The first one was, behold the Christ, behold the Messiah, Jesus. This one is, behold the Lamb, Jesus. Behold the Lamb. Last week we saw that part of the mission of Jesus was a mission of revealing and redemption. came to redeem not every single person. The text is very clear. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, that is, to those who cast their trust on Him and Him alone. They don't trust in any of their own works, their own efforts, their own ideas. Those who trust in Him alone, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Those are the ones He redeems. But how is that? What is involved in how God works all that out? Well, John the Baptist makes that a little more clear for us here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is another majestic and stunning statement. It's majestic because it takes a little bitty people group's Messiah, their deliverer, and it expands him, it blows him up and expands him to cover all of the globe, the world. All of the realm of fallenness is his scope, not just a little people. It's majestic and it's stunning because this great deliverer king is turned into a slain lamb, killed for sin. We live in a fallen and broken and messed up world. It's not as bad as it could be. There's still good things here, but it is not anywhere near what it should be. There should never be death or disease. There should never be abuse or degradation. There should never be crime or hatred or pain or suffering or sorrow or loneliness or loss or regret. None of that. We should never have to hear sirens of emergency vehicles rushing to and fro because there should be absolutely nothing for them to do. There are so many concepts and experiences that should be foreign to us. Think of how many words in our vocabularies shouldn't even exist because there would be no real-life referent for them to be pointing to. Words like war, murder, rape. Those words shouldn't mean anything to us. But they do. They do. They have meaning. Those experiences are real for us, even here in America. Because for all of our lives... The only existence we have known is a life lived in a fallen, dark world. Broken. In rebellion against the Word who made it. Fallen into and trapped under the all-pervasive power of sin. Sin that affects the macro-level societies that surround us. Sin that affects the very heart within us. Life-wrecking soul-destroying, eternity-damning sin. Darkness. And then in shines the light. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This mighty Messiah, God the Lord Himself, coming to Israel but coming to more than just ethnic Israel, coming to deliver all of those who receive Him by faith, who trust Him wholeheartedly, 
That's what the text says. The whole realm of fallenness, all the world is what he's after. Regardless of bloodlines, all alike can become children of God. Have sin removed from them. Born away. How is that? This will happen as the Christ deals with sin. He has to, he's going to fix all these problems. He has to deal with the root of the problems. Sin. Now dealing with the, the sin problem, that's okay to think about because if you were a first century Jew, you hear that he's going to come deal with sin or wickedness. That sounds great. You can start right over there with the Romans. And after that, you can move on to the corrupt Jewish leaders. And then i got a list. There are things that need to be fixed. He came to deal with sin and wickedness, all right, but, but not like that. This was radically unexpected. How did he deal with sin? He came as a lamb. And that's hard to fathom. A couple different ideas about what the lamb could be, but as you keep reading the book, it's really clear which idea God means. The lamb of God throws us back into the Old Testament with its system of sacrifice and ultimately it throws us back to the greatest sacrifice of a lamb Passover the judgment in Egypt had reached its climax and God was about to kill every firstborn creature in the land everyone but when the hand of God moved across Egypt in judgment he had said that he would pass over any home the doorposts of which were covered with the blood of a killed, a sacrificed lamb. He would pass over and not destroy in judgment. So those who heard and believed this promise of God sacrificed a lamb, put its blood on the doorposts, and were saved, delivered from the penalty of sin, spared the judgment of God. God provided a way for them to be saved. God provided a way for them to be saved. One, hide yourself under the blood of God's Lamb, and if you do, judgment will pass over and not harm you. Hope, deliverance from the penalty of sin, deliverance in the Lamb. God has provided another Lamb, says John the Baptist. Not just for Jews in Egypt, not just for Jews, period. For all the world, a Passover lamb has been slain for us today. And all who believe in him and hide themselves in him under his blood will be delivered from sin. The penalty of sin removed, born away, carried as far as the east is from the west away from you, no longer left in your account. And the power of sin, the slavery of sin, broken. Be removed out from under its oppressive control. You can begin to experience him dealing with the problems in life now and you can look forward with hope to him eliminating them entirely for you later. This is glorious truth. All ethnicities, all nationalities, all ages, both genders equally. If you are in the fallen world, there is a way that you can have your sin removed. His name is Jesus He is a great, sin-removing, guilt-removing treasure. Embrace Him. Trust Him. 
If you haven't yet, I plead with you, trust Him. It's the way. There is great hope here. The judgment of God removed from you. Covered and passed over. Trust Him. And if you do, if you have already trusted Him, then what? A number of things we could say here. What came to my mind as I thought about this was the book of Ephesians. You recall what Paul does for the first three chapters of Ephesians? Essentially, to use this language in John, essentially he says, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb in this way. Behold the Lamb in this way. Behold the Lamb in this way. Behold the Lamb. Paul preaches the cross. Paul preaches the new community created by the cross. Paul preaches God's grace poured out because of the cross, i.e. because of the Lamb. And then he moves on to tell people how they should then walk in a worthy manner. The message to you, if you've already trusted Christ, is behold the Lamb. Fix Him in front of your eyes, slain for your sin. Ask God to do at least these two things. A number of things that we could apply here, but there's two things I want to bring up related to sin and how you look at it. Ask God as you behold the Lamb to work these two changes in you. Change related to how you look at yourself and your own sin and how you look at other Christians and their sin. I'll be relatively brief here, but I hope to be clear. What do you do, Christian, when you come face to face with the depth of your own sin? We all know we're sinners. We all talk about that. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Okay. But I'm talking about those moments when you see it. Maybe one night you, you fall into pursuing some pornography on the internet. And you do that, and you do that, and you do that. And after you stop, you just feel dirty. Ugh, I thought I was above that. I'd hoped I had been delivered from that. I thought that wasn't me, but I guess it is. Yuck. What do you do? Or maybe somehow you become aware of just how much you do this. You put Jesus over here and you live your life like this as you want to. You realize, I am so thoroughly self-centered. I use Jesus and I use all other people for me. And you see that and it looms up large in front of you somehow. What do you do? Those times or other times, Satan begins to speak in the back of your mind, who in the world do you think you are? You sure better not pray about it because God's not going to want to hear that. You don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card, kid, says Satan to you. What do you do? At those precious moments when you realize that you really are a sinner, those are precious moments if you do this with them. At those precious moments when you realize this is who I am really in all the ugliness Behold the Lamb. Slain for that sin. He knew that. He saw that. Before you even thought of doing it, He saw it. And if you've genuinely already trusted Him, that sin was nailed to the cross. It has been removed from you, born away from you. You're clean. And you do like David did after getting caught in adultery and murder. 
He repented and confessed and reckoned, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, and he worshipped. People thought he was crazy. He gets caught in this sin, his son dies, he goes into the temple and worships. He knows that God has borne away his sin, and it changes everything about how he looks at himself. Yes, I am a sinner. Let's not deny that. And let's, let's keep this sin ever before me. But let's also keep this slain lamb ever before me because God has put that on top of it. Glory to God. To the praise of His glorious grace, says Ephesians 1. This should matter how you look at yourself when you see your own sin. And it should matter how you look at other brothers and sisters when you see their sin. When it becomes really clear that they're sinners. Of course, you all know that we're each sinners. You know I'm a sinner. I know you're a sinner. But there is going to be some time or another when I'm going to really sin against you. And it's going to hurt you. What do you do then? Imagine a a friend or a spouse or something. They say something about you in public that's kind of humiliating, frankly. And it crushes you. What do you do? You could immediately respond with something equally humiliating about them to get them back and make things equal. Or you could wait until you get home and then lash out at them. Or you could show them the cold shoulder or in some way hold something else over their head until you decide that they have sufficiently atoned for their sin. And you can let them back into your fellowship. We do that, don't we? Don't we? You can do any one of those things, or you can behold the already sufficient atonement for their sin. You can reckon God to be a good enough judge and get down off the bench yourself. This does not mean that you should instantly entrust everything to them again. There there are lots of other things to talk about, about how to protect yourself from being physically hurt or repeatedly abused in, in your your naive trust. There are other things to talk about, but what I'm talking about here is how we tend to hold a grudge and exact our revenge because we are functioning as the judge. That particular sin against you was also born away by the Lamb at the cross, assuming that person's a Christian. And what God has forgiven, we also must forgive. Where God has said, my beloved, we must also say, my beloved. And there's a fight there. It's easier said than done in some ways, but the path is laid out as clear. I am to look at my sin in light of the Lamb, and I am to look at your sin in light of the Lamb, both. Beholding the Lamb who takes away sin, renews us on the inside, stirs up in us affection for Christ, as Paul is working at, by showing us what He has done with our sin. And then it shows us how to walk in a worthy manner, not walking in condemnation and not walking condemningly. Behold the Lamb who takes away sin. The Lamb is also the Messiah. Jesus. All of God's work is focused, centered on Him. May you be as well.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.